Welcome to the Higher Potential Living Podcast, where we discuss improving quality of life by exploring mind, body, and spirit through a mindful lens. Here's your host, Jason Marichello. Hello and welcome everyone. Today I was joined by Shamish Aladina, who is uh, an early on teacher of mine, and we had a great conversation about integrating mindfulness and improving quality of life by bringing in aspects of compassion, kindfulness, and other elements into our daily practice and into our daily lives. Shamish is an international best-selling author of Mindfulness for Dummies and The Mindful Way Through Stress. He frequently pops up in newspapers, magazines, and on radio shows. And based in London, he runs workshops and speaks at conferences all around the world, And now, of course, using webinars and other resources to teach mindfulness as well. Shamish is also the co-founder of the world's first museum of happiness in London. And we jumped into so many amazing different topics and had so much fun uh, on this podcast. So hopefully you enjoy. Shamish, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure, Jason. Thanks for uh, having me on the show. Yeah, I I was trying to think of when I actually met you. And I I narrowed it down, I think, to about three years ago. I took one of your courses. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that really stood out for me about you is how authentic you were. Oh, thank you. I see so much of this, uh, for lack of a better description, I guess, this like guru complex of people teaching mindfulness and stuff like that, who, you know, are sitting there with their perfect posture, and they're so serious and everything. And and I mean, this in the best way possible. But for you, it was not that it was jokes, it was playfulness, it was like poking fun of people every now and again. (laughs) Well, I've got the beard. So I'm moving towards the the guru complex. I'm catching up with you. (laughs) I think that's just the age that's coming through. But uh, it was really refreshing to get that. And it's actually uh, inspired me to even shift the way that I've done my coaching and teaching. So thank you so much for that. Oh, that's nice to hear. Thank you. So for those that uh, don't know who you are, which I can't imagine there's many out there. Must be a couple of, maybe there's one or two people. Yeah, maybe a couple. For those individuals, I was wondering if you could just start us off today by speaking a little bit about your journey and how you kind of were able to hone in what you really wanted to drive your life towards and, and this passion that you've developed over the years. Mm, thank you. Um, well, the more I kind of reflect, because I've had this kind of question a few times about my journey and, and trying to think about where my journey starts. And it seems to kind of get earlier and earlier. And I guess, and I think it happens for, for many people, but I think the journey started when maybe I was six or seven years old, or maybe even earlier. But just that sense that something doesn't feel right. It's a bit like, it's a bit like mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen The Matrix. Have you seen that film, The Matrix? Something mm-hmm. just doesn't feel right. So, and for me in that moment, it was actually, I realized, hang on a minute, I'm in this bubble of my world and, you know, these are my parents and this is my brother and all this stuff going on. It's felt like my head was really full. And I thought, hang on a minute, there's all these billions of people in the world and they got that whole thing going on too. Hmm. And we've come from, it seems to be I've come from nowhere and then everyone's got all these bubbles of, of life within them. I don't know, something just didn't feel right. It didn't really make sense. But anyway, I didn't think about it too much, just the fact that it didn't make sense. And then life kind of continued. And I was in a school where I was very happy and, and enjoying, enjoying life. But the next wake up call happened when I, I joined uh, what they call secondary school at age 11. And uh, there was some bullying there. I didn't feel uh, accepted in my class so much. Um, I found it really, really hard and unenjoyable. And... Around that time, the way I found my happiness was through academic success. Mm. So I was good at class, you know, when I was younger and I was in secondary school, I I could get A A grades in certain subjects and I got praised for it. So although I didn't feel comfortable so much socially with my group, I was kind of connecting positively with adults and getting my sense of what was happening is I think now is that my ego was being built up around the fact that, you know, this is going to make you happy in the future if you focus on this. So there's some mm. success there. 
And it seemed like a positive thing because I've been praised for it. So, you know, it worked really hard to get good grades, went into a good university. And that continued, something that had started at a young age. And I still wanted seeking, you know, really good grades even at university. And it became more and more competitive and more and more difficult. So I'd have to work harder and harder. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this kind of setting the pathway to uh, a life of, you know, almost working too hard, overwork. But the wake-up call, the massive wake-up call I had was when I got a job in the summer vacation to do, I was studying engineering and mm. I'd just chosen that subject, chemical engineering, because it was, you know, the highest salary on, in, in the list of things that you could do for the subjects that I had. So I was just basing it on financial. Mm. And so I, so I was doing this job, I was earning this money. And I remember spending that money just to buy some clothes. I thought, this is going to have, you know, I'm going to get this amazing feeling that I was expecting. It's the most money I've ever had. I was aged like 19 or something. And that feeling wasn't there. And it seems like a small thing, but, you know, in, in London, there's a famous street called Oxford Street. And that's the street with all the, it's like the center of commercialism in a way of, of London or maybe even the world. And I was, I was literally on that street and I bought, bought these clothes and, and just looking up and looking around and seeing, all, you know, like you see on those videos where people are kind of rushing past and you got the person in the middle thinking, what the hell's going on? That actually happened to me. And so I thought, I don't know, you know, I felt very empty there. And so... I realized that I had a real loss of meaning at that point because meaning was given to me by academic success and financial success. And suddenly I thought I've been taught all this stuff that was going to give me a future happiness and it doesn't look like it's going to give it. I don't know what to do. And so am I talking for too long or is this okay? Should I keep no, going? you're doing fantastic. I'm loving <laughs> it. Every I'm, I'm going <laughs> through my life, but uh, great. Okay. So then I, um, so I got to this point where I was just feeling this emptiness. And again, interestingly, London gave me the solution because I was on the underground and I was just waiting for, for a train and I saw a poster for a philosophy class, an Eastern philosophy. It didn't say Eastern, it just said practical philosophy. And I thought, hang on a minute, that's like the opposite of chemical engineering. I'm just going to try that. Let's just see what happens. I didn't think it was the solution to any problem at all. It was just something different. Mm-hmm. I was stepping out of that bubble. And... That, that was the day that kind of started my journey and changed my life because of what the teacher did is I think he had, I don't think he even had a whiteboard there. I think it might've been a blackboard and he drew a triangle on the, on the, on the board. And at the bottom of the triangle, the base of the triangle, it said deep sleep, mm. lowest level of consciousness. You know, you're not conscious at all. Nothing's happening. You're not even aware of any dreams. I'm like, yeah, that's right. Even in my materialistic scientific head, I agreed. Mm-hmm. Next one was dream state. Slight, you know, still pretty much unconscious. You can't do anything, but you're in the dream. I'm like, yeah, that's true. Then the next one started to get even more interesting, which is normal everyday wakefulness. Slightly more conscious, but they said this is what it's like when you go onto the trains or the underground in the morning. Everyone's on autopilot. Mm-hmm. Life is happening, but it's kind of happening totally automatically. No one's really connecting with anything. They don't know. It's like life is happening to them. And then they drew a line and they said, moment of choice, moment of wakefulness. Mm. And above that triangle, the top bit of the triangle was higher levels of consciousness. And they said, you know, there's activities and exercises that have been developed over thousands of years, mainly in the East, but also in the West. And you do these exercises, you get into higher states of consciousness and awareness and you live a more full life. Look at the bottom of this triangle, you're not even conscious. Mm-hmm. So there's the ability to move to higher levels of consciousness and you, you feel more alive, you feel more connected. And, and my, my left brain started to agree with all this. I'm like, yeah, that totally makes sense. Why didn't anybody tell me this? Um, but they said, you know, you need to have this moment of choice. You know, you know before that, you're just kind of like you're sleepwalking. Mm-hmm. But there's a moment where you can wake up and there's an opportunity to do something different. So I thought, oh, cool. And then they did this exercise, again, which was a life-changing moment because it was an experiential version. That was the intellectual understanding. Mm-hmm. But then I experienced it too because they went through all the different senses, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. I went to the listening and they should just listen to the sounds and get a sense of the silence beyond the sounds, which that was one thing that was mind-blowing. <laughs> but then they said you could listen to your thoughts like you're listening to sounds. So just like... You know, normal sounds like the sound of my voice right now, it's an external experience. So the sound of your own thoughts is also like an external experience. And you are the observer. 
You're the observer of everything, your thoughts, your feelings, your bodily sensations, your problems. You're never them. You're the observer of them. Mm-hmm. And so you're always totally free from them. And this was just like, oh my God. I thought I'm so old. I'm age 20 and I'm learning this. I wish I learned this when I was a child. <laughs> so I just wanted to share this with the world. And so, you know, almost I got obsessed with reading lots of spiritual books. And you know, for one year I was just reading Krishnamurti. I don't know if you've heard of Jay Krishnamurti. I was reading his books. I was going to these other retreats. I was just doing everything. And I almost failed my degree because I got so obsessed with all this stuff, but just about managed to get through. And then my first part of the journey was to work in a school where all the children did meditation, which was linked to this philosophy school. And that was for 10 years. For, so from university from age 20 to 30, roughly. And then um, I got more interested in mindfulness. We could talk maybe more about that in in terms of a concept because I didn't call it mindfulness. And when my book came out, Mindfulness for Dummies, that's when I spent the last 10 years uh, just teaching mindfulness full time. So not teaching children, Mm -hmm. teaching adults, I guess, and training mindfulness teachers and and doing stuff related to that. So, and here we are in in the present moment now. Wow. wow. I feel like I can make a whole podcast series just tapping into the different parts that you just mentioned. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit about that. Uh, a few different things kind of stood out. And uh, I love your, your reference of the matrix, because I think that is such a, a tangible way that people can kind of like feel into that decision, like when you refer to that triangle. And it's such an interesting awakening. moment. like I was like, I had tingles when you were describing it, because I remember that exact same moment when I had some of those same like mind blowing experiences and all that, or like when you were talking about observing the thoughts, I think it was the first time, first of like five times when I went through Eckhart Tolle's power of now. And he made reference at one point of like observing your thoughts and anything that you can observe is not the true you. And I remember just sitting there and again, having that mind blowing experience. And I think I was in the car too. And I just had to pull over with my hands on the (laughs) steering wheel and just stop for a second. (laughs) <laughs> so I loved I loved it. I could relate so much to the different aspects of your yeah. your story. And it makes me wonder too, like how many how many kids are out there that kind of have that feeling, that feeling of like something's not quite right, but they don't know what to, to do with it. I mm-hmm. think it's fantastic that you were working at a school that actually had, you know, meditation and this kind of stuff uh, worked into it. Because I know for me, I I started in this journey at a young age as well. I was one of those Uh, I felt just like the weird kid, the oddball out when my fellow classmates were celebrating uh, snow days. I don't know if you have those in in London. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, definitely here in Canada, when we're having a snow day, everyone else is out celebrating. I remember sitting and thinking, if the weather is bad enough for schools to be canceled, what if people are getting injured on the roads? And like, this was kind of like working in a slightly different way. And everyone's looking at me oddly. Yeah. But wasn't able to recognize that there were ways to kind of like harness my mind. And then the first few books I did get into to mindfulness and meditation at the age of like 10, they didn't seem very tangible for a 10 year old. You know, this is like really? essentials of Dogen and stuff like this that I was wow. starting to get into. You were an early starter. And like, I'm, uh, it was a, a whole uh, similar path of bullying and trying to, mm. trying to come in control of some of those emotions and everything that I was going through but it just felt like there wasn't a whole lot. And, you know, it'd be interesting to even kind of do a study with bullying and people who end up getting into yoga, mindfulness, and all this kind of stuff to see the correlations between that. Wow. I never thought of that. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's possible. There's a link. There you go. We can, we can do a joint (laughs) kind of check into uh, all of that. You being bullied, maybe you're just a, a hidden spiritual master waiting to be born. <laughs> oh, it's interesting because then I, some of the stuff that I got into uh, reading, just like you, early philosophy, um, really dove into that heavily in the, the beginning into Buddhism and stuff like that. And listening to the rebirth cycle and how it was describing, you know, uh, where we kind of leave off sometimes on our journey in our past lives kind of starts us where we are in this life. And I was like, oh, I must have been just getting the grasp of meditation in my last <laughs> life. So it threw me into it early on and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. But um, yeah, thank you so much for sharing that story. I was curious, you mentioned how at that initial school, it didn't refer to the work that you were doing as mindfulness. You may mention no. that. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, that meditation, they called it meditation. They just, the first exercise, they called it the exercise. Literally, the mm. name was the exercise. And then when there was a short pause, they called it the pause. Uh, but there's no reference to the word mindfulness at all. I'm not sure I'd even heard of that word for the first few years. Although we used to have these retreats that used to organize these retreats where you'd go to a country house or something and you'd, you know, you do meditation, more mantra based meditation where you repeat a phrase, but then you just practice doing one job extremely mindfully. So they'd say, okay, sweep the floor. It's almost like karate mm-hmm. kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wanks the car. Um, and you just had to sweep the floor extremely mindfully and mm-hmm. had to really feel each of the bristles. And you might do that for an hour and then they'd say stop. And then you would sit in a group and you'd talk about it. So you'd talk about, oh yeah, you know, I was brushing the floor and what I observed or I was, you know, painting the wall and what I noticed. So that was a real intense training in mindfulness, I guess, without knowing it. Um, And they used to talk about, uh, it's actually a nice concept. I don't talk about it so much now, the working surface. And they say, no matter what activity you're doing, there's always a working surface. So for example, if you're sweeping the floor, the working surface is between the bristles of the, of the thing that you're sweeping with and just Mm. the dust on the floor. And you just rest your attention on that working surface and you just connect there. And then when you're having a conversation and someone's talking to you, the working surface would be, you know, listening to what they're saying and what they're trying to say. So that, that was interesting. And the sense of, you know, you could actually rest your attention on that working surface and the, and the activity starts to happen by itself. The sense of non-doing the mm-hmm. sweeping is happening or listening is happening or walking is happening rather than I as the ego being the doer of it. Anyway, the way I came across mindfulness was um, Google's got this section for research called Google Scholar. Mm-hmm. And it's been out for a long time. And I think this might have been in 2006 or seven. I was just curious because I've been doing meditation for a while. Like, oh, yeah, I wonder what studies are out there on meditation. So I just went to Google Scholar and I typed in meditation. And the first page or two had mindfulness meditation in it. I'd heard of uh, transcendental meditation. That's popular. And this John Kabat-Zinn kept coming. So I copied and pasted his name and then I found a video of a talk he'd given at Google. Um, I think he may have only had one or two talks on there. Mm-hmm. And then I Googled for mindfulness teachers and there was a couple of teachers in London. And uh, that's how I found out about the concept of mindfulness. I just thought it was a good way of teaching meditation actually. And then I did training in US a bit and also UK. And then do you have the meetup.com, the, web, the website mm-hmm. meetup.com? Yeah. So I went to meetup.com. There was no meetups for mindfulness. So mm-hmm. I started the London mindfulness meetup group. And then, you know, used to get 10 people <laughs> that came to my little flat and I used to teach them mindfulness there. So yeah, that's how I came across that concept. I love it. And again, I think it was a John Kabat-Zinn um, video. That was like one of the first things that I oh, really? on, that same one at Google office. Yeah. I really? Oh, so you saw the same. So yeah. was that, what year was that for you? Uh, that was probably about seven years ago. Oh, seven years ago. Something wow, like so there's still a popular video then. Yeah, like it, I, I don't know how, how many followers uh, or views that has, but I think, again, like some of these commonalities, because he's been, he's been going pretty strong since the 70s, I think. Mm. He really started getting uh, traction for the work that he's doing. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's great. I think it's really interesting that working surface in that autopilot kind of thing, because uh, I, I'll usually describe it to my students as like, where is your awareness or where's your consciousness? And I like that idea of the working surface, because one of the things that I'll give a student to do is the mindful toothbrushing exercise. Oh, yeah. And so get them to, again, snap out of that automatic pilot and try brushing their teeth, but then shifting their awareness from what is the experience like to brush your teeth from the perspective of the teeth, like feeling the bristles on your gums <laughs> and all that. Good one. Yeah. And then from the perspective of the arm and hand maneuvering around the gums and kind of shifting that idea of like, okay, so the working surface can actually it, to, to just j- jump on board with that terminology yeah. that you just yeah, yeah, yeah. can kind of like shift a little bit depending on what the focus is of that mindfulness practice. But that's uh, interesting. interesting. I'm not sure if it would be though, because like whether you're the toothbrush or the tooth, or the hand, the working surface is actually the same. It's the bristles touching the dirt on the teeth, interestingly. Mm-hmm. So, so you can see it, but, but you can like, see it from different perspectives, but yeah, it'd be so maybe the same point. Sister uh, or twin twin yeah. concepts there. Okay, interesting, interesting. 
So I was thinking a little bit about the uh, the journey and the path, and I'm really trying to because the idea of this podcast is to connect with you know everybody and anybody, not just someone who's pursuing a yoga uh, you know way of life or anything like that. And the one thing that really stood out is that idea of you know your your academic studies just kind of driving you forward. And one thing that I hear so much from people is about like this conditioning of what life should be. And I know it's, it's different for like different cultures and different peoples. I was raised in like a pretty traditional European household. And there was this model of like, go to school. My dad worked in trades, so I wasn't allowed to work in trades. I had to get like a job wearing a suit. Didn't matter what it was, but I had to get a job wearing a suit. And then I had to earn so much money, then I'd get the house, have the family. And it was almost like before I had a chance to think about what I wanted to do, it was like my life was already laid out for me in some ways. And so when, when we're trying to come to that point of determining like how we want to live our life, or what brings us joy, or whether we're going to step out of the matrix and take that pill or not, <laughs> yeah. how, do you, how do you help people? Or is there anything that you can say to people to try to navigate that that pivot or that journey as it, as it unfolds? Wow, that's a great question. Well, if we go back to the uh, story of the matrix, mm -hmm. there wasn't someone constantly telling Neo, you know, there's something more, there's something more. He actually, actually arose in himself. It was almost like the mm -hmm. seed had ripened to a point where something doesn't see it feel quite right. Something needs to change. Something needs to be, I, I need to find out what that is. And then he got lots of support. Like, so, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Mm -hmm. So although there's this, uh, and I can understand it, and maybe there are ways to do that. We could talk about that to help nurture people's seed so that they may feel ready to take, I don't know if it's the red pill or the blue pill. <laughs> I say take both pills. Let's see what happens. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think there's, that, that needs to be, that needs to happen. I mean, we, as you just shared in your own story, there was something mm. that naturally didn't feel right for you and something wasn't sitting right. And so you naturally started to explore certain books and philosophies and got drawn to that. And in my, in my situation too. So sometimes I think we need to allow people the space and the chance to pursue what they think will make them happy or what they think they need to do. And it may be pursuing uh, becoming a millionaire or in a certain relationship. And we hope, you know, sometimes the very act of trying to change their mind or to say, Hey, why don't you check out this book or this mm -hmm. approach? They, that may have an effect. It may not. We just don't know. I'm just reminded of, I shared with you the school that I used to teach at where all the kids were offered a space for meditation mm -hmm. and mindfulness. And it seemed as if none of them were interested when they were young. They're like, you know, there was just, they all acted as if like, oh no, it's not very cool. And they feel as if they're almost being forced to do it, which wasn't the right approach at all. So we had this quiet time where they could just do drawing or coloring in if they don't want to do the meditation. But a certain age came when they were 16 or 17, and not all of them, but 10 or 20% of them, they started to genuinely get interested in mindfulness, in meditation, in a different way of thinking. And it's as if that we'd been pouring something into their cup, but we just didn't see, or didn't see the fruits of it. Or it's almost like watering, watering a small plant and it's growing, but never any, any fruits came up. But then one day those fruits developed. So from a teacher's perspective or a trainer, uh, for people that don't seem to be so interested in this, you could share a little bit. You could, you could try that approach and maybe something will, will grow fruit in the future. Uh, but sometimes this is a very clever, this is an advanced thing for, for your listeners mm. is that you can use special techniques of reverse psychology. So I remember there's one uh, meditation them that we do this to them. <laughs> <laughs> and it's reverse, reverse psychology. It gets confusing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this meditation teacher, one, uh, one wife asked him like, you know, I'm really trying to get my husband to come to your, your spiritual classes. I've been trying hard for years. He just won't come. What shall I do? He said, okay, buy one of my books, take it home, but say to him, he's, can't, he's not allowed to read it. He's not allowed to touch it. This is a true story. Okay. So she, she took his book home and you know, he's like, oh, what's that you got? She's like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't understand it. Just don't even look at it. And she, you know, she put it in the corner. So, you know, he wouldn't. And when she went out for a while, he literally found the book, 
started reading it, absolutely loved it. And by next week, he was there at the classes. <laughs> That's brilliant. I love it so much. <laughs> the reverse psychology so, many, so many different elements between relationships and ego and all that, but I think it's fantastic. <laughs> One of the analogies I think I remember from the course I did with you, and I'm, I'm thinking it was you because I've, I've given you credit for it for years now, but, uh, <laughs> is similar okay. to how you were talking about watering that plant and waiting for the fruit to come. Um, was about the seed germinating. And I think that I, maybe you could do a better job of describing this, but I think what I remember was talking about how when you first plant a seed and all seeds have like a different length of time that it takes for them to germinate, but mm -hmm. you plant the seed in the ground, you can't really see what's happening there in mm -hmm. the beginning stages and you're watering it and you're watering it. And sometimes we can get impatient. I'm totally guilty of doing this. We get impatient and we start to dig at the soil and in the yep. process of trying to dig out the soil and see if the seed is germinating, we end up killing it. So sometimes it just takes that patience to let the seed do its thing. And then when you kind of almost sometimes when you've given up on it is when you start to see that little sprout start to poke through the top of the soil. That's it. Yeah, yeah. No, I do remember sharing that. And that's a really nice. It's not easy, is it? We're right. so naturally impatient and we just want to see results. So again, just going back to what I shared earlier is that sometimes we have to go through that process of watering the seed and digging it out and watering it and digging it out and realizing I'm not actually getting anywhere. Mm -hmm. And then I think the motivation for patience will come like, okay, I'm just going to have to try something different. Let's just leave the seed there, keep watering it and, and see what happens. And then I think and that's, that's something that actually makes it almost more challenging as a mindfulness teacher nowadays because it's the society that we tend to be in wants to be very like, what's my takeaway? What's the, what's the goal that I have here? What's the exact thing that I'm going to get? If I like, I've had people come in uh, cause I'll do some works with teens as well. I'll have parents drop their kids off and uh, I'm going to be working with them. They'll say, so how many sessions until, you know, they're, you know, they're over this or how many sessions until they're enlightened or something along this yeah, line. Yeah, exactly. like, if I had that answer, I would probably not be in my little 10 by 10 office doing this <laughs> podcast right now. <laughs> but uh, so, cause you've done some coaching, you've worked with all kinds of different people. When you hear that word of people and they say, um, I, I feel stuck. I get that one all the time is, you know, they don't know what's wrong. They just feel like they're not on the right path or something like that. I just, I feel stuck in my life and I want to try to figure out how to overcome this hurdle or something like that. Have you come across, is that one that you've faced yeah. a lot as well? Yeah, 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 yeah. And there's definitely not one answer to that. What, what I like about, um, especially more nowadays about coaching and uh, supporting, mentoring people is certainly not to see myself as the expert and the person that has the solution or the answer. Mm -hmm. But I enjoy almost, you know how we talked about being the observer self, being the observer of your thoughts, emotions. Uh, and for so many years, I, when I was coaching people, I was very worried, like, am I going to say the right thing? Am I going to answer the, ask the right question? And maybe I should have done this or I should have done that. But nowadays, I enjoy being the observer self. So that sense of stepping out for myself and letting myself do what, whatever I do and say whatever I need to say in the moment and, and accepting however it goes. And so, you know, you ask, you're asking about being stuck or about coaching. So what, whenever a person would ask that, whatever thought would come into my head, that sense of what I need to ask next, I would ask, I'd ask that next. And sometimes it may be to go more into details about the stuckness or, or it might be something completely different. I like, you know, let's just do a body scan for half an hour and let's see what happens after that. So just to trust, trust my intuition, intuition in the moment as to what would be the right thing to do. Um, but there's a great sense of freedom when you step out from being your mind and trying to get things right and getting the, like you mentioned, the takeaways, you know, giving them the right takeaways so that they feel satisfied and just stepping out of that whole business and, and watching the show between these two individuals, like a coachy and a coach and seeing what happens. Well, I think you, you nailed it there too. Talking about when, if someone were to ask, like, you know, I feel stuck, what do I do and all this and even shifting to a body scan. It's like, okay, this person up in their head right now. That's true. Just like, do we get out of the head into the body? Because I feel like, again, that's, that's so much of that. Uh, we've, we've talked in previous courses um, and different people that we've both read, I know about the, the doing and being mode. Mm. And there's so much of that needing to do, 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 that we don't like feel into the moment, go into that being space, be the observer where the answers might already be. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. 
And uh, what you say about, uh, it's almost a frustrating question, actually, like what the takeaways are gonna, am I, am I going to get from this? What if, I mean, it's a great question. What if you get no, nothing from it? What if the point of this is to do something for nothing? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just a mind-blowing thing, a mind-blowing concept for people. But I'm guessing, you know, not too far distant in the past, people used to do stuff just for the sake of doing it. And I think hopefully people still do that from time to time. But what if you're going to do something and get nothing out of it? Mm-hmm. And then actually, if you, if you told someone, you know, we're going to spend an hour, we're going to get nothing out of this at all. At first, people might feel frustrated, but after, I'm sure there'll be a good chunk of people who are like, that's just a great relief. I don't need to get anything out of this. I can't get it wrong. And we're just going to get absolutely nothing out of this. I love that. And, Take you know, the pressure away from it. Yeah, there's no pressure. Yeah, you can't, you, you know, what, no matter what happens in the next hour, you can't get it wrong because we're not going to get anything out of it. And even if you do get anything out of it, that doesn't make a difference either. Mm-hmm. And the crazy thing is, is that's where I think transformation starts to take place, where mm-hmm. something, something shifts. Because of finally, the ego, which is always trying to do, 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 trying to achieve, trying to get, trying to improve, mm-hmm. uh, gets to have a break and calm down. And the mind gets a chance to recharge. And the problem with meditation as well mm-hmm. is that we're so used to the doing that you start doing meditation and that becomes another thing to do to achieve. Like how calm can I make my mind? How present can I be? What did you know? My body scan wasn't as good this time as it was last time. All that stuff happens if there's the sense of getting something out of it. Mm-hmm. And I can understand why people do that, especially with, you know, there's so much research on it. There's so many commas, benefits of it. So you start thinking about, okay, you know, when am I going to get this benefit? I've seen, I saw someone uh, scoring themselves, like, you know, seven out of 10, six out of 10, nine out of 10. And okay, you could do that every now and then. But if you do that too much, then you're just back to the whole realm of, of judging yourself and, and uh, measuring. But what we're trying to do is going to the immeasurable. So mm-hmm. you, can't, you can't have an eight out of 10 for, <laughs> some, for something like that. So many people, uh, especially I get those very A type personalities, right? Like they want... Okay, how do I do? Give me a give me a grade. I want a report card after you know all of this kind of stuff. And it's so much. It's, it's so true that that expectation that drives things. And I think it was um, I think it was Alan Watts that I was reading that he uh, referred to um, something that the Zen Buddhists would call a uh, reeking of Zen, of how you have these people who will come in and they'll be spouting all of this you know, knowledge, and they'll be quoting this, and they'll be quoting that. And, you know, they're doing everything that they think that they need to be doing to reach enlightenment and everything. And then the monks would look at each other, and they would laugh. And they would just <laughs> say, Oh, this person just reeks of Zen. And reeks like that, of Zen. Wow. <laughs> that's always kind of stuck out in my mind of like, just seeing these monks laughing and just, you know, oh, there's still so much learning to kind of happen there. But <laughs> it's, it's, I, I get that a lot with the meditation. And I, I run different programs, some specifically just on mindfulness, where we won't do like any meditation, or we'll do grounding and stuff like that. And then we'll enter into discussion. Then I'll do series where I'm introducing all these different styles of, of meditation to people. And uh, that's the one that I, I hear the most, like all oh, my mind was wandering all over the place. I had to bring it back like a thousand times in that meditation. They feel like a, a failure. And one of the interesting concepts with that bringing the mind back because i don't know your take on it but my intellectual left brain self likes to think of the brain as like a muscle and we're doing all these workout and exercises and building certain neural pathways and all this kind of stuff and i see that like prefrontal cortex that is actually recognizing or observing as we talk about when the mind does go off and when it wanders and for me it's like this little game i have going on with that ego it's like, okay, who just scored a point here? But it's a whole, it's a playful thing the whole time. There's no frustration. Like, ah, okay, you won that round. I'm thinking about chocolate <laughs> chip cookies right now, but we're going to bring it on back. But That's it funny. so much frustration for people and it really does. And I think it's because they want that tangible something. It's really yeah. challenging to kind of get that one, uh, get that one to sink in. It's not something that, you know, goes in and you can like say to somebody or, or verbally speak to them and teach them something. It's something that they have to really feel and experience. Exactly. Yeah. There's, there's a sense of there's a difference between intellectually understanding something and actually experiencing something. And I think there's two levels of understanding there that people can get out of it. And I think that's what you're describing there. But mm-hmm. one thing I like to do with the, with the mind wandering is actually tell people, 
sit for 10 minutes and just let your mind wander as much as it wants to and just mm -hmm. let it do that. And when you sometimes do that exercise, people come back and say, oh, uh, couldn't, I couldn't make my mind wander. <laughs> yeah. I think there's some great like uh, Zen Buddhist um, proverbs about that, about the student going yeah. up to the mountain with the assignment to think and unable to think and feeling like <laughs> a failure and then being sent back up to the mountain and told not to think. And then he does nothing but think and then he feels really? like a failure. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a good one. Oh, I didn't know that one. I like that. It's all that ancient Dogen stuff again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it yeah, pops yeah. up every now and again. I haven't read much of that. That sounds brilliant. So you have several books out now, and you've been, I think, even more active, at least from my observing you lately. Uh, mm. It kind of seems like you did a little bit of a, a lull there. Maybe you were introspective or something. But now I'm seeing you blowing up with these different community projects, and mm. getting different people involved in everything. And it seems like that's been a bit more of a focus. Is that something that you're kind of looking at as more the community sense now and how we can kind of make a shift as a, as a whole? Kind of, yeah, that's quite observant of you actually. <laughs> I, I never thought of it like that, but yeah, I think when this uh, lockdown happened, um, it, it kind of forced me to pause and reflect a little bit more than I normally would. Because mm -hmm. I think I've got this habit of traveling every now and then and coming back. And I I'd got into this routine of traveling and working for years, actually. Mm -hmm. And suddenly I couldn't do that. And so I was very interested in ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy and Training. Mm -hmm. And of the six elements of it, uh, I started to get attracted more and more by the transcendent self, which is one of the six elements in, in ACT, which is transformative and very good for mental health. <laughs> and so... Uh, I was just doing my own thing and the old books I used to read when I was age 20, 21, 22, I thought, oh yeah, I hadn't read that for a long time. So I pulled it off the shelf and it was, it was like a big wake up. It was almost like that same light bulb moment I had back all those years ago, 20 years ago, may have even been exactly 20 years ago. And I had this uh, amazing experience actually in a, in a park and it wasn't a, it was kind of like a spiritual experience, but it wasn't an experience. It was an insight. Mm. And ever since then, um, I think I, I, I just feel a lot more comfortable tuning into that observer self part of me and just letting whatever happened, happen. So, you know, so these community projects have happened and uh, one or two books have happened. And it sounds crazy. Like it's just happened. It sounds like it almost too, zen or too <laughs> spiritual but it really has happened i've just like i haven't planned it so much i've just woken up and the thought has come and so i've shared it and one thing's led to the other like we've got this mindfulness day coming up mm -hmm. it's just a thought that came and i shared it with someone and then, and then it just started growing and, and become become what it is uh so it's been a really wonderful experience so although there's been loads of suffering happening at the moment for so mm -hmm. many people including myself in different ways uh, it's led to some really interesting uh, insights and ways of working, I guess. Well, I love it. The thing that's really stood out for me is we've felt so much more isolated in certain ways um, during you know, the COVID and people being isolated into their homes or having to quarantine and everything else. And then I, I wake up and I go check my social media and you have a, a new 30-day challenge going on. Or, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, so for those that don't know, Shamish has, different like Facebook groups for people who have completed his mm -hmm. courses and he has like the mindful champions uh, group or champions of mindfulness. And, and um, he's launched a couple books where he's invited some of his past students and, and people who are now teaching now to come together, write a chapter each. And I know for me, it has helped like rekindle the sense of community that almost has felt a little lost. There's like so much divide over different people's thoughts right now. And so people almost seem like they're afraid to, well, not everyone. Some people are very open about sharing their opinions right now and <laughs> criticize and so forth. But then there's this whole demographic of people that are just afraid to speak out because they don't want to be criticized or anything. So they're just going silent. They're shutting down. And when we can shift the focus altogether, shift the focus on compassion, shift the focus on seeing those things that are uniting us, you know, whether you're your view is pro-vaccine, anti-vaccine, pro-mask, anti-mask, or whatever. The thing that's driving so much of what we're doing and so much of our, our actions is fear. And that's like a common thing that everyone is, is going through. But instead of saying, okay, well, this is a common thing we all feel. 
how can we actually approach this together? We're looking at more of the surface manifestations of that fear as being the things that divide us. But what you're doing and, and what I'm, I'm loving is saying, okay, let's, let's flip the coin completely. Let's put this aside and let's look at the whole kindfulness side of things. And I remember that was also, I wanted to talk about that at some point, um, just being mindful of time, of that, that mindfulness, kindfulness uh, play on things. So the, I think it was you were the first person that kind of like made that shift of like, you can't have mindfulness without kindfulness. <laughs> yeah. So where was that like, that drive for that compassion and all that kind of stuff? Was there another awakening that kind of happened there? It was actually, yeah. It was, um, you've made me think through this conversation. I haven't realized, but it's through my personal uh, challenges that I go through and mini awakenings that the, what, what I've shared with others has come about. But that happened after I'd been traveling too much and working too hard. And that uh, tendency to overwork was kind of kicked in too much. And I was, I'd come back from a long travels and I was really tired and I was expecting to be tired. And so you know, I rested as much as I could for a week or two, but the tiredness just continued. So I'd wake up in the morning feeling tired and I was, you know, facing all these kind of calls and emails to do, but the motivation wasn't there. And then I thought, hang on a minute, this is just not going to look good. A mindfulness teacher with burnout. <laughs> Something needs to change. So I thought, so I thought I had this light bulb moment, which was, when you're tired, it's almost like a Zen. When you're tired, sleep. So I thought, okay, let's follow that. And let me just sleep whenever I feel tired. So, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning, I was going back to bed and just seeing what happens. And I found myself listening to different videos on YouTube because well, I couldn't fall asleep. And it was by a monk who'd, who'd given a talk on the four ways of letting go, uh, Ajahn Brahm. And the next video that was recommended was a whole retreat on YouTube, every single, you know, you'd, you'd have like two or three talks per day or one or two hours, mm -hmm. all there for the whole 10 days or whatever. So I thought, oh, maybe I can just do a retreat in bed and see, mm. and see what happens. So I started listening to it and he talked about the concept of, you know, you cannot have mindfulness without kindness. The, the problem with the mindfulness movement is they've taken the mindful bit from, from Buddhist teachings actually, but it's part of a whole eightfold path it's part of a part of a whole approach and the essence of that whole approach is about values and the essence of all the values is about kindness and compassion mm -hmm. so no one's going to stop this mindful movement it's going to keep going so why don't we do this little trick just change the m to a k since so of mindfulness we call it kindfulness in a way you're bringing a lot of that package that was missing in mindfulness teachings mm -hmm. and and so the way he taught it was very compassionate. And he would say, you know, if you're feeling sleepy, you know, don't try to force yourself to stay awake. Just sleep for the first few days of the meditation retreat. And rather than, you know, this idea you talked about, you know, the mind goes off and bring it back, mind goes off, bring it back. He's like, if your mind wants to go off, let it go off and just say that I'll be here. Let me know when you want to come back <laughs> type of thing. Mm -hmm. and so I tried this and I hadn't ever done that before in my life with meditation. And I was just lying in bed and just letting the mind wander. And it found this amazing stillness, which I hadn't accessed for years, mm. very deep peace. And my body had this sense of disappearing and really recharged me massively. It was like connecting to, you know, the, the main electricity and recharging myself. And I was feeling really fresh after a few days. And so I thought, oh, I must share this with others. And so uh you're right actually at that point people talked a lot about mindfulness didn't talk so much about uh kindness and compassion but when i shared it people found it very attractive too so mm -hmm. you know i spent a year actually creating a, a online course on kindfulness and um for for a couple of years that was one of the main things that i talked about actually just bringing the kindness and compassion in and i discovered that you know when people go on retreats or when they do mindfulness practice if they're lacking the kindness and compassion it can almost do more harm than good because mm -hmm. if you're, you're using, it's almost like a blade of mindfulness and it hasn't got that softness to it and you can injure yourself to a certain extent because if you're being very harsh to yourself, mm -hmm. if, for example, if you've got a very self-critical mind and you're just being mindful of that and you're just trying to force yourself to do one thing or another, it's not going to be good for your mind. The flexibility and the kindness is very much needed. So I love yeah, that. that's, that's how it came about. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. And, you know, I think, again, during COVID, that self-care 
element has been something I know the people that I've been working with, that's been like the main topic, especially when people were having to drastically shift from this go, 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 doing mode, doing mode, doing mode, mm -hmm. and then they're stuck at home. And then having that, it's almost like for me, I see it almost like I know there's this whole idea of non-duality for the sake of playfulness. I always give the different characters in my mind like different names sometimes, right? So I have uh, Doug the Doer and Doug the Doer <laughs> is in my, <laughs> there's all kinds of stuff going on up here. Don't, it's, uh, I won't even try to explain it, but Doug the Doer is in there and he's like, oh, Jason, you should be answering emails. If you're not at the studio or something like that, then you should at least be doing something. You need to get on your computer and you need to get this done. And yet for so many, we're going through a big emotional shift trying to figure out what's going on in the world. And really what I needed was not to jump on the computer and do, do, do. It was to just have, like you say, a day in bed or a day to just sit in the garden and not feel the pressure of what I need to be doing, but just check in with myself and say, okay, how do you actually, you know, you've been working with all these people and trying to um, help people go through the different stress they're doing and doing suicide interventions and all this kind of stuff. How do you feel right now? How are you actually coping with everything that's going on? And I think even uh, as, as teachers, you kind of touched on something that's pretty big there of like this, this, this little voice that can come up sometimes for us. is like, oh, don't be a hypocrite or something, you know, like, oh, the, the stress teacher talking, getting stressed out and, and this kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, but how we need to have compassion for ourselves through all of this as well. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a big reminder. So I, I love that piece around the kindfulness for sure. Mm -hmm. So I'm just being aware of the time and I wanted to give you an opportunity if there's any like last, last shamish words of wisdom or um, anything that you think is a good tool for checking in or tool for grounding or anything like that. Uh, anything that you want to share before we, we end this? this awesome time together well i think you've asked such beautiful questions and covered such important topics the the two that are most close to my heart i would say apart from the mindfulness is the kindness and the kindfulness and the importance of being compassionate to ourselves so that we can be compassionate to others i've seen research where people can can be kind to others whilst being unkind to themselves but this leads to burnout because you just get, get, get yourself worn out whereas if you're kind to yourself and using learning to use that kinder language it's going to kind of spill out to others. The thing I'm very uh, <laughs> uh, passionate about is the teaching about the non-duality, the transcendent self. Mm -hmm. I'm very, uh, I touched on the concept of act acceptance and commitment training, which has been developed alongside, you know, when John Kabat-Zinn was talking about mindfulness in the seventies, that was the time where act started. They didn't even use the word mindfulness because they didn't want to put people off. They wanted to keep it completely secular. Mm -hmm. The quality of research on act is, is just so beautiful. And it's so nice to see that their findings was this perspective taking self to, to see, to be able to be flexible with your sense of self rather than having a fixed ego. Like I am a kind person or I am a nasty person or I am anything learning to loosen that. And just to, just to stay with, I am is very, very powerful and very good for our mental health. It increases a thing called psychological flexibility. So I'm very passionate about sharing that transcendent self and act. And just the last thing I wanted to share was um, another kind of beautiful thing that came out of these challenging times is that I wanted to kind of practice with a group uh, regularly. And so I started this challenge in July for 30 days and we had this group of people and I thought, you know, you know, when people sign up for something, they might turn up every now and then. Mm -hmm. but we had the exact same number of people that started on the first day to the 30th day. It was, I was amazed. And so we were all meditating live together. I was guiding a live meditation every morning. And I've never done that in my life. I've been you know, meditation teacher for a while, but I've never taught every single day at the same time for 30 days, weekdays and weekends. And, you know, someone said, oh, you're going to get burnout. You're just working so hard. You're teaching all the time. But for mm -hmm. me, it, was, uh, it wasn't a teaching. It was, um, in a way, I was kind of listening as, as much as everyone else. I was listening into the meditation as the observer self type thing. And so I did it in August. And now we started a club in September. And I really love it. So, you know, I've been teaching every morning. Uh, and I bring in the elements of the transcendent self and act and mindfulness um so i'm excited to see what happens with that too but it's so nice you talked about the community and things happening naturally and this is a mm. a natural seed that grew out of it and yeah um, i'm just as excited as the participants about how it will 
move next. But that's been wonderful. Yeah, I can definitely speak to the fact that you never end up getting the same attendance. Like that's unheard of in the in the world of facilitation and all that kind of stuff. So the fact yeah. that that's happening really speaks to, I think, the hunger and that connection that you're you're establishing with all these people that are joining you every morning. That's beautiful. So I'm in a different time zone than you. I'm sleeping when you're doing that, and I wake yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. I get the little notification. Shamas was live today. I'm like ah, good on you, Shamas. I I was there in the dream state. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I love it. And I haven't actually looked too much into ACT and now I'm um, getting inspired to definitely look into it more. But I love that idea of, you know, these identities and breaking down some of those, those scripts of identity. Because I haven't looked at research before that talks about specifically the main, uh, if you want to call them the crises. So like quarter life, midlife and three quarter life crises. And the reasons why some of the studies have shown that people end up going into that is because of these different sense of identities that end up getting shattered in those times. So the quarter life crisis coming from, I am a student, I am a student, and now shifting into, oh my goodness, what does being an adult look like? Mm. And then midlife often going around, I am a caregiver, I am a parent, I am, you know, however this image is that I have. And then typically being associated to your kids not needing you so much anymore and having this big shift in life and not, again, knowing who you are. And then three-quarter life being, I am my job, I am my job, now I'm retiring, who am I? Wow, or that's fascinating. You yeah. Look at this idea of like, I am the whole way across. That doesn't shift when you're going yeah. through different stages of life. Like you are, that is, <laughs> we are, however you want to put that. So yeah. I, I, that definitely resonates with me. So I'm going to have to look into that uh, more for sure. Yeah, I think you really enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. So if people wanted to find you and find out more about what you're doing, what is the best way to kind of reach your content? Um, I think it depends which kind of social media thing that you like, but my website, which is very hard to spell, shamashaladina.com. <laughs> that's, that's the, and then, you know, if you're just starting out, then I've got like a free seven day email course where they get a little meditation every day. That's, that's maybe a good starting point if you're new to mindfulness on YouTube, my work to find out what it's like. Beautiful. I'll make sure that I'll link that in the, the notes. So everyone's not trying to guess how to spell Shamash <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Even I get it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a real pleasure. I feel, uh, I feel like it's been, um, like I could just keep going on and on and on, but mm-hmm. trying to keep to some sort of regiment of how long these episodes are. Thank you so, so much for joining me today and being a part of this. And I look forward to continue to follow you, watch you. That sounds a little bit uh, off-putting, but <laughs> just keep watching you. Uh, yeah, so thanks so much. And I look forward to maybe connecting at the like 100th episode or something, get you back in here and, and share. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. That'd be great. But well, I just want to thank you, Jason, for... Uh, you're really, I remember you as a student on our program and it just really stood out. You're so passionate and you're asking such great questions. And I'm so grateful that you've got the courage to go out and start sharing these important teachings with others as well. So I'm so happy to be connected with you and learn from you too. Thank you so much. Yeah. When the student's ready, apparently the teacher approves. <laughs> I've heard that somewhere. It's <laughs> probably in the matrix as well, by the way. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Thanks so much, Shamish. We'll talk to you soon. Bye.